the KKJ staff was awing, ooing. Isn't that great? Hey, you know, um, that's our theme for the year, and that's our vision for Living Hope, to be a church to call home. And, you know, when you were sitting down, there was something on your seat. It was a postcard, if you can take a look. It's an invitation card placed in your hand that you're going to take home today. There's someone in your life uh, that God is saying uh, is looking for a church to call home. They, name, they may not say it to you. They, they may not uh, appear to be someone that may fit into living hope. But uh, there, there's someone in your life in which God is saying to you, uh, make the invitation, give them a card, and just communicate, hey, uh, this is my home church. I don't know if you'll like it, but it's my home church. Do you want to come visit on Easter Sunday? And that's about a month from now. It's going to be a, a fabulous Sunday, um, lunch for everyone. We're going to turn uh, the covered parking area on the uh, east side into a backyard barbecue with jumpers and bunnies and uh, snow cones, I think. Snow, I, I forget. Cotton candy, I forget. Someone tell me. Cotton candy, snow cones, I'm not sure. Something like that. With white picket fence, it's going to be cool. Um, baptisms and all, but, and so, you know, please take a minute to, to prayerfully think as to whom God is saying for you to invite. Uh, and on that same day, we're going to have baptism, and if you are a Christian but have never been baptized, it's a way that you're expressing your unity with Christ and unity with the church, and so uh, baptism will occur on Easter Sunday, so if you have not ever been baptized, please uh, look in the website or talk to one of the staff members. I'd love to baptize you that day. <clears throat> hey, if you are a member of Living Hope Community Church, you know that it, the process in order to become a member uh, involves meeting with a pastor or one of the elders to, for an interview. I love doing membership interview because I get to meet all sorts of people, uh, interesting background, different uh, spiritual journeys. They come with pains and they come with uh, really a desire to, to be involved in a, a church to call home. Some talk about, when I asked them about their spiritual journey, a junior high retreat they went to. And they accepted Jesus at a junior high retreat. And somewhere along the way, they fell away from the church, didn't go for a long time, and now they're coming back. Others talk about how Living Hope is the only church they've ever known. And there have been times when it's during their interview, I realized, oh, they think that becoming a member is like becoming a Christian. And so I uh, give them the gospel message. And in the interview, I lead people to Christ. And it was, it's been exciting. Other people come in with years and years of church experience, uh, former elders or deacons or even pastors who come looking for a church to call home. And it's exciting to hear uh, the journey that God's taken them on. Um, Others, and this is interesting, come and I asked them about their spiritual journey and uh, there's a phrase in Korean called moteshinang, which literally means um, a f f faith from the mother's womb. So they were born into a Christian home, grew up in a Christian home. They can't remember a time when they accepted Jesus Christ because there was never a time where they did not uh, you know, have Jesus. And so, depend, you know, regardless of what their spiritual journey is, I always try to understand them. Is the Christianity that they are thinking of simply a label that they're putting on? 
or are they truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Because, especially for those that have grown up in the church, or have served as leaders in the church, or have been in the church a long time, there is a danger that for all of us, if you're included in that category, that we have become a functional moralist or a cultural Christian. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been in the church five years or more? Raise your hand. Five years or more. Raise your hand. Five years or more. Yeah, it can be living over any other church, okay? All right. The rest of you are been at, in a church less than five years or you're doing something else and you're kind of not uh, realizing I was asking to raise hands, right? All of you who raised your hand, there's a danger in us that we have become and we have slid into, and though we, we may have accepted Jesus Christ and believe that it is by grace, we have slid into now a functional moralism. Or there's a danger that we have become cultural Christians. You know, we're in this section of Romans, and Paul is laying out a case against mankind, saying that before I give you the good news, I have to give you the bad news. Before trying to tell you that we can be saved by faith, I have to tell you that you are condemned by your bad deeds. That before I say that uh, you're, you can be saved, I have to convince you that you are in need of salvation. So in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul makes a case against the immoral and the idolaters. But we learned at the end of it all, all of us are immoral idolaters. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul makes a case against those who trust in their good deeds. Um, but Paul makes a case that our good deeds just are not good enough to compensate for our sins. Now, in this passage here, in chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul is going to make the case against those of us who, in particular, are religious and he's going to make a case against us saying that there is a danger for us that we are trusting in Christianity apart from Christ. Now, let me, let me say that again, okay? Um, that there's a danger that we have put our trust in Christianity and not Christ. And so he makes a case against us. Uh, by talking about uh, to the moralist in us, the religious in us, and then answer some objections. So if you have not done so yet, turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 2, verse 17, and we're kind of just going to go almost verse by verse. And um, we know that he's talking to the religious person, the moralist, because he says in chapter 2, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, and that is the title for the religious person of that time, and he's talking about the resume of the moralist. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, and in, in our context, it would be, you check the box on the survey and tell others that you are a Christian, that you rely on the law, you Put your dependence on the Bible. That's the book for you. You stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, right? That you um, 
boast in God, you unashamedly sing of your relationship with God and you lift your hands and close your eyes, that you uh, know his will, that you have a certain insight into the heart of God, that you approve what is excellent, that you have the ability to discern best from simply good, that you are sure that you are yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, that you have become competent enough to lead cell groups, to uh, teach at Kingdom Kids, and to lead in catapult ministry, and that you having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that you possess what really matters. We have a picture of someone who is a moralist. Now, um, there is an important difference between morality and moralism. And I want you to look at the screen because this is such an important kind of distinction. And um, Tim Keller puts it this way. There is not much difference between the words morality and moralism, but there is an eternal world of difference between making a good thing, morality, into your God, moralism, okay? It's a subtle but profound difference. Morality is a good thing, but we can turn that into moralism if we trust in morality. For Christians, we can tell if we've become functional moralists when we trust in our goodness, if we boast about how good we are, if we somehow in the back of our minds believe that because of my goodness, I deserve or somehow God approves of me a little bit more than those who are not as good, that we, uh, by our actions and our profession and our identity, kind of lean into our goodness. And if we start doing that, and that's, this is what I'm saying, that if the longer you've been a Christian and the more uh, Christian a life you live, the more, likelihood, the more likely we kind of have slid into this functional moralism. And when that happens, Tim Keller says that we've joined now the world's biggest religion. Listen, the world's biggest religion is not Christianity the world's biggest religion is not Islam. The world's biggest religion is not um, one of the Eastern religions. The world's biggest religion is moralism. Moralism, in its essence, regardless of how it's flavored or colored, says that I am good enough. And when Christians, you and me, you and me we begin to do the Christian life well, we begin to think that I am moral enough. That's the resume that he lays out, and then he attacks that resume by talking about the hypocrisy of the moralist, the hypocrisy of the moralist. He says in verses 21 through 24, listen, you then who teach others, while you preach against stealing, you who say one must not commit adultery, you who abhor idols, you who boast in the law, and, and I want to make it clear that he's not saying that any of those things are bad, that those things are all good, but after having said all of those, 
Do you not teach yourself? Do you steal? Do you not... Um, um, do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? You, you don't apply the things you teach, the things that you teach the children, the catapult students. Are you actually doing those things? You're adamant about not stealing, but do you not steal uh, in your own way in taxes or copyrights or, or time from work do you point your fingers at those who lead alternate lifestyles, but do you not commit adultery with your mind through the things that you watch? You would never worship an idol of Buddha, but do you not? Do you not put success and trophies um, as place, uh, things that you worship, and at least that's what you communicate to your kids? You say that you are a Bible believer, but do you, dis do you not dishonor God by disobeying the exact Bible that you proclaim as God's word? In other words, you shout loudly of your religion and morality, but do you not live contrary to the very essence of your religion? He says something stunning in verse 24, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The hypocrisy of the religious Jews of that time is causing the Gentiles to disbelieve God. And the hypocrisy of the religious Christians today is causing the world to disbelieve God. Remember last weekend on Saturday, there was big news kind of that bubbled up. A, a single person went into a mosque, a pair of mosques, uh, and killed 50 Muslims who were worshiping. The irony is that it occurred in a town called Christ Church. Most people had the sense not to post anything insensitive or stupid. But let me ask you this honest question. Your community, uh, the community meaning your um, non-Christian friends, uh, neighbors, co-workers, people who don't go to church who are family members, and, and, and I'm going to say it, um, people whom you call friends on social media, they're not really your friends, but you're just connected. I'm going to get on my little soapbox here right now, and I rarely do this. I, I, I kind of normally just try to preach the Bible, not get as personal. And if it feels like, hey, Pastor Steve's kind of like maybe looking at, pointing at me, is he talking about me? If, if it sounds like that, yes, okay? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Your community, those that don't go to church, those who are different from you, from their direct or indirect interaction with you through the snide remarks that you make, the inflammatory social media posts, and the indifference that you show to those who are different, different religiously, different in sexual orientation, different in political leanings, different in race, different in legal standings, 
your community, would they think that you naturally would have responded to the shooting in the mosques with, oh, he would be heartbroken and would show compassion? Or would your community maybe in, in a small corner think that you would have cared less or even worse have uh, in, a, in a corner of your heart kind of rejoiced because, well, they had it coming to them. Well, they're not one of us. Listen, I want to say something to you. The reason why many non-Christians are not open to the message of our gospel, they're not open to our Easter card invitation, they're not open to visiting our church is because of the way that you carry yourself, because of the way we carry ourselves. David Kinneman of the Barna Group spent three years polling young, unchurched Americans to find out what they really thought of Christians. The result uh, he published in the book called Unchristian. I referenced this a few weeks ago. He said that non-Christian young people see Christians as judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, too political, insensitive, and boring. I know that's that's like we get most offended by boring. Like what? <laughs> All right. Though we may think that one of the reasons why they feel that way is because of how the liberal media portrays evangelicals or Christians in general. But listen carefully. In his study, they found that the non-Christian, young non-Christians shockingly said over 50% of the respondents felt negative about Christians. It's not because of the media, but because of their personal uh, contacts with Christians. The conclusion is that many of those outside of church reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. Do your non-Christian uh, friends, uh, those who are very different from you, feel more judged by you or loved by you? Listen, the greatest hindrance to the gospel is not the incredible claims of Jesus, the miracles of the Bible, or the morality of the message, the greatest hindrance to the Christian message is the Christian. An opinion, a peace writer from the Huffington Post insinuates, uh, listen carefully, the single greatest cause of atheism in America today is the hypocrisy of Christians. Let me say it again. The single greatest cause of atheism in America today is the hypocrisy of Christians. When they meet Christians, when they know you directly or indirectly, though they may be so, so different, the first thing that they ought to feel is not judgment, but love and compassion. So Paul writes to the moralist, the functional moralist, and he says, hey, do you know what you're doing? 
And then he talks to the religious side of that same person. And we know he's talking to the religious side of that person because in verse 25, he says, for circumcision. Now, he, he talks about circumcision. And circumcision is the primary marker of a Jew that, that defined him as the Jew. And it, it defined him as someone of the covenant family, a recipient of God's favor and a ticket, to, and as someone who has a ticket into heaven. The world was divided into the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The circumcised uh, are those who are part of the God's family, will receive God's favor, and will end up in heaven. The uncircumcised have none of those things, and most likely not end up in heaven. One rabbi commentated that Abraham would stand in front of hell, the gates of hell, and not allow any of the Jews or the circumcised to enter into hell. Every religion has markers or a marker that defines who's on the inside and who's on the outside, an external marker that kind of uh, distinguishes someone. For the Christian, the markers that we oftentimes point out is baptism and membership. And that's how we sometimes define who is a true Christian and someone who is not. But Paul makes a point in verse 25 that these external markers have no value. Listen carefully. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. What if a person has the external markers but internally and in terms of life doesn't live according to those external markers. But there's another person who lives according uh, to the spirit of the, what those markers are supposed to be. Isn't that more of the person uh, that is true to those markers? And, the, and Paul's answer is that the external markers have always de uh, been designed to reflect what's happening on the inside. Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And if, if we kind of think about it in the Christian sense, uh, no one is a Christian who is simply one outwardly, nor is just baptism or church membership, or church involvement make us a Christian. You know, some um, 27 years ago, I got married, and, um, and when my wife and I stood at the altar, uh, we did like what many of you have done and many of you will do soon, um, is we ch exchanged wedding rings. You know, I think um, rings are a wholly impractical things. Someone somewhere along the way decided that, that men needs to be uh, blackmailed into buying the small piece of geology. 
um, two months worth of geology, right? <laughs> In order to prove his, you know, devotion to the, to the woman. And then they furthered it by saying, you know, um, they ha- it has a color that no one knows except an expert. A clarity that you have to look in a microscope and to figure out what it is. And someone uh, developed the idea that we should certify these things, right? Um, wholly impractical, isn't it? Right? And what are you going to do? You, you have a, an engagement ring, what are you going to sell it later on? You can't do that, right? Um, and the guy has, you know, gets a ring too. Um, and I think wedding rings or engagement rings are wholly impractical. I, I think if you, know, if you want to be practical, I think the pastor, when he's doing the wedding, um, and, and he would say to the, the groom and the bride, um, um, it's time now, would you exchange your eye watches? <laughs> a groom, do you have an eye watch that you will give to your bride that will be synced together all the days of your life, <laughs> Right? And then at the end of the day, all you do is cling, and instead of talking, it will sink. This is what I've done. And when she asks, what, well, how was your day? Well, there you go, honey. And whenever new versions of the iWatch come out on the market, because you've made the initial investment that those, your two watches are upgraded every time and synced eternally. That's a cool idea, isn't it? But instead, we have... Wedding rings, and you know what's horrible about a wedding ring? And you know, yeah, it's not horrible, but it's you know, like once in a while. And, I, and okay, I'm going to say this right. Like one of the most just terrifying, terrifying moment is when, oh my God, I can't find my ring. Right? Anyone? Anyone? Some of you are giving me that look. Um, Like, you know, you you have this ring that you you got on your wedding day or your engagement day. And and the monetary value may not be much, but because of the meaning of it, like if you lose it, oh no, what do you do? And you, you know, men, if you if you lost your wedding ring, I know you're going to do all your, your best to find it, etc. And then, and then one of those days you have to go home and, and you have to tell your wife, I've I've lost my ring, honey. Right? I, you you might as well say I killed the dog. That's better <laughs> than to say I lost my ring. Right? Right, ladies. Like, but you know what is really a wedding ring? A wedding ring think about it, is merely an external marker to signify that you're committed lifelong to a person, right? You can lose a wedding ring, but you're still husband and wife. Someone could decide to put on a ring on their left hand and fourth finger doesn't mean that they're automatically married, are they? In the same way, what Paul is arguing is circumcision, baptism, church membership, they are all designed to signify something within you, your commitment to another person, your Jesus Christ to the church. 
But if you begin to rely on that external marker and not the relationship, that external marker becomes nothing. By the way, uh, baptism coming up on Easter, baptism is still good, right? So if you have not been baptized, please be baptized. And um, if you guys are going to propose, yes, buy her a ring, right? Rings are good. Okay, I don't want to get in trouble later on. But you get my point, right? Let's go on. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul answers three potential objections from the mythical Jew that he's talking to. If morality and religion are merely external things and it doesn't guarantee uh, a true relationship with God, if the Bible and baptism does not guarantee entrance into heaven, um, uh, here are some objections. There are three objections. Number one objection is this, what good is religion? If that's the case, what good is religion? He states it this way, verse one of chapter three, what advantage has a Jew or what is the value of circumcision? What good is being a covenant person, having the law and being circumcised if none of these things uh, guarantee heaven? What practical advantages are there? And verse 2, he answers, much in every way. There are many, many advantages. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He's saying that as a Jew, that you've been given a special revelation, a great privilege, and a great responsibility. But the problem is that the Jews took that and thought it only as a guarantee for blessing. They ought to have realized that they were given the law to be called the kingdom of priests, to be set apart so that they can be a light to the nation but they hoarded it for themselves. You know, I, I, um, like many Asian Americans growing up in America, at one point in time, I thought I was going to be a doctor until about junior high school. I saw some blood and I realized I cannot be a doctor. And till this day, and all the years, all the years my girls were growing up, we went to the doctors. Um, um, when the doctors were giving them immunization shots, I've never seen my... My daughters get a shot. When my girls had loose a tooth, I, I, I know this, I'm, just, I'm so bad. You know, like you put the string and you yank it out, you know, I, I can never do that. My wife had to do that. I'm such a coward. Okay. I, um, I can never be a doctor, but I, I have a lot of doctor friends. Both sides of my family, my wife's family, we have lots of doctors, my friends, and we have lots of doctors here. And I know we have a lot of other, like, healthcare professionals here. Uh, but, you know, I, I think those who are in healthcare, they, what they learn at, um, in their education is a very unique set of knowledge, uh, their skill sets. And it gives them both a privilege and a responsibility. That they have knowledge that most other people do not that should keep them healthier than the general population, right? A doctor should be healthier than the average person, right? Because they just know more about pathology and, and disease and, and, uh, and immunology and, and things of that nature. But the reality is that a person could study cardiology 
uh, the medicine of the heart, uh, one of the finest institutions in the world, and still end up having a heart attack. And one of the reasons is because what you know doesn't always translate into how you live. And so if a cardiologist knows that he ought to eat healthy, keep his cholesterol down, not have stress, et cetera, et cetera, but he lives contrary to that, contrary to his knowledge, that knowledge is unhelpful for him, right? And so the Jews asking, so how does this help? God, yeah, yeah, that's right. You need to not only know, but you need to live it. But, but he makes a further point here. The Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Important point. Why does someone go study medicine? To be healthy? No. You study medicine so that you can become a life giver to others. You study how diseases are transmitted so that you can help prevent the spreading of disease. What good would it be if someone who has all the knowledge of how someone could be healthy, prevent sickness, etc., uh, hoarded that knowledge and, and looked outside and said, well, those are sick people. I want nothing to do with them. That's what precisely Paul is accusing the religious people with. The second objection is this. Is God good? Is God good? What if some were unfaithful, verse 3? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If God has made a covenant promise with the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later on Moses, later on uh, David, and then we find that many of the Jews were being faithless, does that mean that God's original promise was somehow null and void, that he was really not good? Verse 4, he answers, by no means, absolutely not. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is true until the end. God will keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on. And though there might be individuals who reject that, but, but God's ultimate promise will still prevail through Jesus Christ. The third objection, should we be blamed? Should we be blamed? Listen carefully to how uh, this objection in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. It's kind of convoluted. It's hard to understand. It's kind of like this. The Jew was saying, look, if we were unrighteous, but God forgives us, and because God forgives us, God is glorified for being a a merciful God, and God is more glorified? Oh, wait a minute. Then my unfaithfulness has made God more glorified. Oh, my goodness. Then I shouldn't be punished for my unfaithfulness. Does that make sense? No, not quite? Okay, let me put it this way. A drunk driver crosses a, a red light slams into your wife's vehicle on the side. She's injured in the hospital for weeks. The drunk driver's on trial 
your wife shows up after being weeks in the hospital. Time for her to testify, and she gets up and, and, and with weakness, still aching and, and recovering. This, I, you know, I'm a Christian, and I want to forgive this man. And, and the crowd in the, in the courtroom is like, oh, my gosh, what a great testimony. What a generous lady. Wow. And they, they'd be like, in the courtroom. And the drunk driver goes up as he is uh, supposed to testify. And he says to the courtroom, to the judge and the jury, hey, look, this woman whom no one knew is being applauded by all of these people for being gracious and generous. She's more honored and glorified than before the accident. So, judge, I would argue with you, my drunk driving and that subsequent accident has, has actually helped her, right? So I should not be convicted because what I did was actually good. Does that make sense now? That's what this objector is saying, and Paul will deal with this later on. To say that my sins somehow glorifies God because it enables God to be gracious to me, he's saying it's a ridiculous argument. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Because God is a, is a fair God. Once in a while, I, I, I talk to younger couples or people who just started dating. And um, they, they're, deeping, uh, they're, they're diving deep into their commitment, talking about marriage. And, and they, they claim that they found their soulmate, forever partner. They love everything about each other. Can't think of anything that they don't really like. Even the annoying habits they love because they think it's cute, right? They haven't summer or winter together, meaning they haven't seen each other at their best and their worst, but they can't imagine anything really uh, making them feel any different than the way that they feel right now. They're in love. They talk about their lives together individually and, they, and, and imagine how many kids they'll have, where they will live, the kind of friends they will have, where they will go on vacation together, etc. Those of us who are listening think, dude, you barely know her. <laughs> hey, girlfriend, you know, what do you really know about him? During those times, I have to point out the obvious. Are you really in love with him or are you in love with the idea of him? Are you so sure about this person that you want to spend the rest of your life with this person or do you just want to get married and, and he just came along and he, he's you know, the next version of a cardboard cutout and so, hey, there you go. And the problem is that oftentimes we fall in love with the idea of falling in love and not with the person that we're falling in love with, supposedly. And when we do that, later on down the line, we'll be sorely disappointed because the person becomes reality. 
Listen, I think this is the problem that oftentimes we have fallen in love with the idea of Christianity, but not Christ himself. We've begun trusting in the religion of Christianity, the ideals of Christianity, but not Christ who is a holy second person of the Trinity who demands from us a loyalty and exclusivity. If, if, Christ, if, if Christ has never demanded that you, you forsake some of your desires, if, if you've never come to a point when Christ has said to you, wait a minute, no, no, you're completely broken here. Uh, although it's so hard, I want you to, to let go of these things. If you've never really have done that, I would say to you that you've fallen in love with Christianity, but not Christ. And that's not true, and that's not real. Listen, the good news is that Christ has done for you what no religion can potentially do. That Christ has done for you what no morality can do because you can never be religious enough, you can never be good enough. And this is the point of the section of Romans. He's gonna get to the good news, but this whole time he's saying to you and me, you think you're, you're not as bad, you think you're somewhat good, you think you're religious, you're nothing. That's not good enough. He needs to break us down so that we cling desperately in brokenness, looking up in need of a Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for the men and women in this room that your grace would be upon them. And Lord, that the Holy Spirit would beckon us into repentance, repenting even of our good deeds, even of our morality, even of our religion, if those are the things that we've depended upon. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, if people know us as being judgmental, if words that we say, uh, the things that we laugh about, the things that we post, if they're offensive more than loving, forgive us, Lord. Lord, may there be a, a, a revival in this room, Lord, a desire and demand not to be more religious, not to be more moral, Lord, but to be clinging to you and the gospel once again. We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. We pray, amen.